I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, Cambridge's key role in the mission to map the Milky Way. It can ultimately measure the position of a star to the equivalent accuracy of measuring the thickness of a human hair at a distance of about 1,000 kilometres. So it's pretty accurate. We learn how the Gaia Space Telescope is pinpointing the positions of a billion stars in our galaxy. Plus, news of a net which will leave mozzies dead or infertile, the DNA double-double helix discovery, and can the moon cause earthquakes? I'm Ginny Smith. I'm Chris Smith, and you're listening to The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First this week, insecticide-treated bed nets are the most important tool in the fight against malaria, with chemicals called pyrethroids being the main pesticide used to treat them. But frustratingly, many mosquito populations have now developed resistance to pyrethroids, so scientists are on the lookout for alternatives. Kat Arney went to see Mark Rowland from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, who's discovered that combining pyrethroids with a new chemical called piriproxifen could be the solution to this problem. We're looking at alternative insecticides to put on their nets. In fact, we want to take new insecticides and combine them with the old insecticides so we have a a double strategy for controlling mosquitoes. Kind of a double whammy. A double whammy, yes, that's the expression I was going to use. Because not all mosquitoes are resistant to pyrethroids, but those that survive need to be dealt with in some way. So we're combining the standard insecticide with a new insecticide, which actually doesn't kill them it sterilises them. It stops them from producing eggs that are fertile. So the female, even if she succeeds in, in taking a blood meal, is unable to produce eggs from that blood meal. And therefore, there will be no second generation of mosquitoes. You've got the insecticide on the nets that kills them dead, if they're sensitive to it. And then you've got the insecticide that sterilises them anyway. How effective are these nets when you test them? The way we're testing them is under household conditions in the field. We have these um, so-called experimental huts where we have volunteers sleeping under the nets. These uh, huts are in um, West Africa, in rice irrigation zones, where there's lots of mosquito breeding. And these mosquitoes will enter these huts as they would a normal house and will attempt to feed on the people under the nets. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Poor them. Um, there's a trapping system which allows the mosquitoes to come into the huts, but we capture them on the way out so we can see whether they succeed in feeding and we can test them to see whether they're capable of laying eggs. And what we find is that after contacting this net with this new chemical on, the mosquitoes that survive the pyrethroid, because they're highly resistant to pyrethroid, they're actually sterilised by the new chemical. And therefore, they will not produce a new generation of mosquitoes. So over the course of time, the mosquito population in the area will decline. And with no mosquitoes, there's no transmission of malaria. Many people are concerned about insecticides in the environment. How do we know that these new nets will be safe? This insecticide is very safe. We're using very, very small quantities on the net. It's very potent, but its toxicity to mammals and humans is very low. It acts on the, the developing egg, egg, eggs in the mosquito. And the structure of these eggs is very different from a mammalian system. So... This chemical is toxic to insects, but it's really not toxic to humans at all. Is there a chance that mosquitoes could become resistant to this new insecticide as well? Never say never when it comes to resistance and evolution. It's possible over the course of time the mosquitoes will develop resistance to this 
new chemical. Resistance to pyrethroids, the previous chemical that was used on nets, took about 10 years to develop and it's been a further 10 years for those mosquitoes to be prevalent in sufficient numbers to constitute a problem. So we're looking at probably at least 10 years before there's significant resistance which undermine the effectiveness of the nets. Mark Rowland from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and his study was published in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Now from malaria to another really big killer and that's cancer which will affect one person in every three listening to this program. But this week scientists at Cambridge University have uncovered a genetic pattern which crops up much more commonly in cancerous cells and it might account for why cancers show abnormal patterns of growth. The structures are called DNA quadruplexes. They're a double double helix of DNA and they seem to affect how genes get turned on and turned off. Shankar Balasubramaniam discovered them. Everyone knows about the double helix that Watson and Crick discovered in Cambridge in 1953 and it arises because there are two strands of DNA with four letters that communicate with each other in a particular way, G's and C's and T's and A's. It looks like a twisted up ladder, effectively, doesn't it? It is. It's like a helical staircase. Now, what we've been studying in my lab is a quadruple helix. If you, you can think of it almost as a ladder with four strands instead of two. I'm just trying to picture that. Well, the structure in itself, if you can imagine a cube where you twist the upper part and the lower part um, in opposite directions, that's what it looks like. It's rather like a knot. It's not a continuous structure. It's like a knotted, folded structure. And for many years, we've known in a test tube that if you have a bit of DNA that's rich in one of the letters, the G letter... Uh, that these types of structures can form spontaneously. What we've been interested in is, are these structures for real? Do they occur in cells, in biology, in nature? And if so, why and what are they doing? How did you do that? So the way we've gone about it, we've synthesised organic molecules that recognise this structure. So these act as probes that can seek out these structures and light them up. We did an experiment that we published in 2013, which happened to be the 60th anniversary of the double helix discovery, in which um, we had human cells. We used these probes, and you could see little spots lighting up in the nucleus. And these spots are where these structures were forming. But that doesn't tell us whether or not they're just an artefact, whether they're there for real, or whether they really do anything to the cell, does it? So in order to start looking at um, whether there's anything functional going on, there, there are two approaches we've used. One is to actually try and seek out where these things are forming, and also when. And that's what this latest paper has been exploring. We've used the same probes to um, locate exactly where these structures form. The way we do that is we use a probe to bind to where these structures form. And then we use a method of decoding that DNA, sequencing it, to find out exactly where in the genome these things form. We have done that, and firstly we found that they form in parts of the genome that control whether genes are switched on or switched off. And they're very important because, depending on whether genes are switched on or switched off in a particular pattern, the cell adopts a certain state And different cells in different parts of the body have a different pattern of genes being switched on and switched off. Is this cause or effect? As in, could something be changing in the DNA that then it makes one of these structures appear? And that's just like a flag that the DNA has been changed or that the proteins around the DNA have been changed here? Or does putting one of those structures into the DNA make the DNA change its behaviour? It's a great question and a very difficult type of question to address experimentally. The closest we've come to that is uh, we've shown that if you have one of our synthetic small molecules that bind to these structures, what they also do is they give them a longer lifetime than normal. What we've, we've shown, at least for a small number of cases, 
is that we can alter the pattern of genes being switched on or switched off by adding these molecules. So that, that would suggest that they actually have the potential to cause certain mechanistic effects in the cell. And if they do that, flicking that equation on its head, could I take a cell that has something wrong with it and change that pattern of structures and correct the problem with the cell, for instance, if a cell has become cancerous? It's a very uh, intriguing suggestion, and uh, we're exploring that in more detail, particularly in the area of cancer. And it's interesting in the area of cancer because this phenomenon that we've seen seems to occur more often in cancer-related genes than non-cancer-related genes. So we, we have a working hypothesis that the majority of these, these processes are linked to cancer genes. And if we can manipulate them in the way you've described, there may be within there some strategy that could be leveraged um, for, for good, for therapeutics. Let's hope so. Shankar Balasubramaniam, who's been busy untangling those DNA quadruplexes, he published that study this week in Nature Genetics. Hello, Greya here from Naked Astronomy. I wanted to say hey and tell you about my new podcast. It's an awesome audio adventure into the big black cosmos that we inhabit. What's out there? How did it all begin? And what will happen in the end? Presented and produced by yours truly, you can find it on most podcasting platforms. Just search Naked Astronomy. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Ginny Smith. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Still to come, the revolution in astronomy that's mapping a billion stars in the Milky Way. And can the moon cause earthquakes? But before that, it's time for our regular myth conception. And this week, Kat Arney's been looking at a myth that's all in the mind. Mental health problems are widespread in society, with around one in four people experiencing some kind of mental health problem, according to the charity Mind. These include depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, eating disorders and more. Then there are conditions such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. But even more widespread than the incidence of mental health problems is the belief that mental illness is caused by an imbalance of chemicals in the brain, with an Australian survey finding that a staggering 86% of adults believe that this is the case. What's more, pharmaceutical companies that develop and sell treatments for conditions such as anxiety and depression have referred to the idea of chemical imbalance in their marketing materials. But although it's a neat explanation for how things go wrong in the brain in mental illness, it's not really correct. So where did the idea come from? It seems to date back to the 1950s, when some of the first drugs for treating mental illness came on the market. They had impressive effects on people's symptoms and seemed to be boosting the levels of certain chemicals in the brain known as neurotransmitters. These are molecules that shuttle between nerve cells in the brain, sending messages and passing on signals. So the natural assumption was that if ramping up the levels of neurotransmitters fixed the problem, then the problem must be caused by having the wrong level to start with. Unfortunately, this isn't borne out in reality. For example, it's commonly believed that people with depression suffer from low levels of the so-called happy neurotransmitter serotonin. But research has discovered they're not particularly lacking in it. And two different drugs, one of which boosts serotonin, the other reduces it, can have similar effects on mental health symptoms. So clearly, it's not that simple. It's tempting to try and pin everything on our biology, but it ignores the fact that the environment plays a big role and people can take steps towards recovery. On the flip side... A recent German study suggested that people who believe in the chemical imbalance theory tend to have more negative reactions to people with depression than people who don't. Another test with people who'd experienced depression showed that if they were given a spoof lab test suggesting that their serotonin was out of whack, they were more pessimistic about their chances of recovery and less confident of their ability to manage their depression they were also more likely to shun psychotherapy in favour of taking prescription drugs. So what do we know? 
Our brains aren't a set of chemical balancing scales, and life is just not that simple. Clearly, much more work does need to be done into understanding the causes of mental illness and how best to treat them, while avoiding stigmatising sufferers and for the one in four of us that suffers from mental health problems. That can't come soon enough. Thanks, Kat. And she'll be back next week to set another story straight. Now, as National Organ Donation Week drew to a close last Sunday, Greya Jackson met with Alison Galloway-Turner, specialist organ donation nurse at Addenbrooke's Hospital, to find out why we have such a shortage of donors. Half a million people die in the UK every year, but only 1% of them die in a way that's suitable for them to become organ donors. When you say suitable, what do you mean? Well, to donate your organs, um, you would need to die in an intensive care unit on a ventilator, having had either brainstem tests where a patient has sustained a serious head injury and they have no brain function and no brain activity or there is a plan to withdraw treatment because treatment is futile and it's expected that you would die quite rapidly after treatment is withdrawn. Does that explain the wait, why the waiting list is so long in part? The waiting list remains very long because more people are now put on the waiting list. Patients are now surviving longer Certainly we have improved our donor numbers. It's gone up by 50% in the last five years, but we still have not improved our consent rates, so still 40% of families are saying no to donation. Why is that? Um, It's for a number of reasons. In cases where families know what their relative wanted, 90% of them say yes, but in cases where families don't know, 50% of them say yes which just shows if you haven't had that conversation and made your wishes known, families feel reluctant to consent on your behalf. Can you tell me what would happen in an ideal situation then from start to finish and where you would hand over to a surgeon? When we're notified, we would look at the organ donor register to see if that person had expressed a wish. Along with the intensive care or A&E staff, we would approach the family to sensitively discuss... Um, organ donation with them. If they give consent for organ donation, we process that organ donor, so we would gather as much information as we could about their medical history, their current um, medical condition, to be able to hand that over to recipient centres. So organs can be allocated, recipients can be found for those organs. However, even at this stage, some of these organs aren't fit for transplant. And there are lots of reasons why an organ may not be suitable. There may be concerns about the way the donor died, a disease the donor had. So, for example, if they had a cancer, there's a potential that might be transmitted, things like that. That's Chris Watson, Professor of Transplantation here in Cambridge. One area that has been a problem ever since transplantation started is the damage an organ undergoes in that period when you remove it from the donor to reimplanting it in the recipient that ischemic time, that time when there's no um, oxygenated blood going to the organ. And historically, in the donor, when the circulation stops, we've flushed it with a cold solution to optimise the storage of the organ. But that doesn't do a perfect job, um, so the organ always suffers during that storage period. And then when we come to transplant it, it may or may not work straight away. For kidneys, if they don't work straight away, that's fine. We can support the patient with dialysis until it kicks into action. If a liver doesn't work straight away, it's a different kettle of fish. You can't live without a functioning liver and we can't support the liver in any sensible way for any length of time. So you need an urgent retransplant. Typically, patients listed for an urgent retransplant wouldn't be expected to live more than two or three days. So you have to have a compatible liver, suitable size and quality within a very narrow time period to rescue someone if you've given the liver that's, that's not tolerated that preservation time for whatever reason. So we, we look to try and improve the preservation of a liver at the moment by putting it on a machine to see if we can arrest the cold ischemic time, to arrest that period of cold storage, but at the same time test the liver to see if it's going to work when we transplant it. Um, and that's the challenge. We want to be able to say at the end of a period on the machine, this liver is going to work well and we can transplant it safely into a recipient. How are you going about doing that? So the liver comes out of the patient, it's cooled down in a typical way, it's brought to Adam Brooks and then we will prepare it for transplantation but the patient's not ready yet and we haven't decided to use it yet. We'll then connect the, the liver up to a machine by putting pipes in the artery and the portal vein, which is the two ways blood gets to the liver. 
and then collect the blood that drains out of the liver, recirculate it through a device that oxygenates the blood and pumps it round at different rates into the artery and, and vein. Um, and then we can measure at, at intervals what's going on. So, for example, you'll know from running that you're not breathing as much oxygen in as you need, so lactic acid accumulates, so you start getting cramps. With the liver being ischemic, lactic acid accumulates. By putting oxygen through it, we can see how quickly the liver metabolises that lactate, gets rid of it, and that's a marker of the liver working. And this is entirely novel. No one's really been doing this before. The first cases doing this um, were in 2014, the end of 2014, um, and I would guess there's probably been about 200 patients have had livers preserved this way, um, some of them here and some of them elsewhere in the UK. That sounds pretty impressive, 200 livers saved and I guess 200 lives saved as a result. Yes, it, it's, when it works well, it's really good. <laughs> I think you're being modest. We have, on the background of this, we have a programme of, of research using livers that have been declined by all the centres um, and then we do lots of other experiments with the liver. And, and actually four of the livers that we've had that have been declined by all the other centres when we put it on the machine, it's been immediately clear that the liver is actually very good and should be transplanted, and we've gone on to transplant them. So, yeah, we have uh, used livers that actually were, were consigned just for research and not transplantation. So that is very gratifying when we can do that. So it really is a case of every little helps in this instance? Yeah, the, 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 patients, the, the one thing a patient would really regret is never getting the call. And one of the patients actually said this to me, that his greatest fear was not actually being called in for a transplant. It wasn't that it would go wrong or anything. It was actually never having the opportunity for liver transplantation. Around about 10%, so 1 in 10 patients will die while they're waiting. And another 7 or 8% uh, will be removed from the waiting list because they're unfit or other re- for some other reason that, that they're no longer appropriate to have a transplant. A wonderful story, isn't it? Chris Watson and, before him, Alison Galloway-Turner. They're both from Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. Now, what has this got to do with developmental biology? Well, listeners of The Right Vintage, me included, will probably recognise the sounds of the iconic 1980s video game that was Pac-Man. For the uninitiated, a small yellow round blob that was basically a mobile mouth wandered around the screen eating everything in his path. And if he swallowed a pep pill, he could be persuaded to devour a few nasties that floated around too. Now, scientists at the University of Sheffield have discovered a signal made by a gene called RAC1 that turns our own cells into the biological equivalent of a Pac-Man, rendering them capable of consuming their diseased or dying neighbours. This important role prevents inflammatory processes that could otherwise cause cancers. And it might also hold the key to treating certain kinds of cancer in the future. Nazarene Akhtar discovered how the gene works using breast tissue. The fascinating thing about the breast is that it can be induced to undergo changes in pregnancy. So just by launching a pregnancy cycle, you can discover a gold mine of information about how cells grow and how they organise and how they switch function and their profession and how they die and how the corpses are then removed. I suppose this is relevant because if we look at the way that the body develops, there are some bits of it which, when we're a fetus... They form and then you selectively kill off bits. I'm thinking, for instance, our hands start like fins and then you break down the bits between our fingers. So are you saying that by studying how a breast does it, because you can study cycles of it going on and on, you can understand or get insights into processes like that? You can get an insight into the majority of other organs and how they develop and then how they regress and shrink. And I suppose that has implications also for when cells don't die and get eaten up properly in disease states like cancers. Yes, absolutely. Or other other diseases which are associated with uh, with inflammation. How did you study the breast then? What were you doing? We decided to generate a mouse model where we were able to delete this protein called RAC1 within the breast. And then we just looked to see, well, what happens to the breast? And what does happen? We discovered that when the breast needed to produce milk, so the breast grows first to produce these milk producing factories, you could say, in pregnancy. But then when it no longer needs to make milk, then it shrinks back again and these milk producing factories die off. And so we discovered this protein, RAC1, was responsible for removing all the milk and for removing all of the dying cells collecting within the tissue. 
RAC1 causes the cells to open their mouths wide and swallow. Just... The, the thought of what's going on here <laughs> makes my mind boggle. But so, so basically, we have this gene that you've stumbled upon, which yes. has this ability to, yes, to change enable the, the... the tissue to remodel itself and cells yeah. that are done with to yeah. disappear afterwards. Yes. And, and it does yeah. that by encouraging other cells to eat the dead yeah, or so no the, longer yeah. needed cells. Yes. So these are cells that are professional milk makers. You know, they have a secretory function. So some of them start dying. And um, it, what it does is that it gets the, the live neighbours to very quickly eat up and swallow the dying neighbours. And then it gets the live cells to swallow all the milk that they've made. So they basically produce the milk and then they just swallow the whole thing back up again. And now you have these insights. What does this tell you about what this gene might do and its implications mm. for functions elsewhere in the body and possible diseases that it could be linked to? So annually we shed cells equivalent to our own body weight. So that's a lot of cells. And of course, the body has to clear them up. Now, what is known is there's a specialised cell from the immune system, which is called a phagocyte. It's the role of these phagocytes to clear up dead cells, bacteria or anything that the body doesn't need. But the problem is that can cause inflammation. It's like a double edged sword. And so there's compelling evidence that inflammation is linked to cancer development and various other diseases. If you think about it, we would be continuously inflamed if all of the cells in our body were being removed by the immune system. I get it. So what you're saying is that mm. we are shedding our own body weight's worth of cells every year. But if yes. we were to shed that number of cells and rely on the immune system, system. to get rid of them, we would yes. have serious health problems. Yes, we but would. But you don't see serious health problems, so we something don't. else is stepping in. I think you put it so much better than I did. <laughs> yes. And that's where RAC1 possibly or these sorts of processes come in. It's encouraging well, other cells to eat these dead cells, yes. not the immune system. Yes, yes. It's basically hijacking the role of the immune system and it's converting the profession of the epithelial cells, which make up the, the majority of our internal organs, and it's causing them to become phagocyte-like. So what are the overall so implications then? What do you think, now based on what you've found, what yeah. can we apply this to or how can we use this knowledge? Well, there's compelling evidence that inflammation, so you know, the body's immune system is linked to the development of cancer. And of course, if healthy breast epithelia could be stimulated to remove damaged cells or dying tumour cells, it would keep the inflammatory phagocytes at bay. And so there's certainly um, a treatment aspect in that respect. Nazarene Akhtar and her Pac-Man-inspired paper appeared this week in the journal Developmental Cell. Are earthquakes worse when there's a full moon? It may sound like an old wives' tale, but new research suggests that there could indeed be a link. To find out more, Laura Brooks spoke to Cambridge University Earth scientist Alex Copley. An earthquake occurs because as Earth's tectonic plates move relative to each other, the forces gradually build up on the surfaces that cut through the crust that we call active faults. When these forces get big enough, then the rocks break and move in an earthquake. These sort of stresses build up over an awfully long time, sort of millions and thousands of years. There are another kind of stresses which affect the Earth, which are the stresses due to the gravitational pull of the sun and the moon acting on the Earth. This is both acting on the rocks themselves and also making the oceans move around in the ocean tides, which pushes against the continents and changes the stress in the rocks. These stresses are very small compared to those relating to the motions of the tectonic plates, but they fluctuate very rapidly, sort of multiple times a day. So the idea that people have had for a long time is that you're more likely to have an earthquake when these tidal stresses are promoting slip on a fault rather than when they're inhibiting it. It sounds like scientists have been speculating about this for a little while, but there's now been a study published this week which, which looks a bit more closely at this link. Can you tell us what they, what they found in that work? So this recent paper, what they did was they looked at some very large earthquakes that have happened recently, and they saw that these happened at the times when these tidal stresses were sort of promoting motion on the fault. However, when they looked at all the earthquakes, not just these big ones, they found no relationship. So there are two ways you could interpret this result. One is that when the tidal stresses are in the correct orientation, you're more likely to turn a small earthquake into a big earthquake. 
Or the other way you could interpret this is to say that because they're only looking at a small number of big earthquakes, that you just don't have enough for the patterns to be representative. And the jury is still out as to which of these two options is the correct one. And earthquakes of this scale are quite rare, aren't they? How often do they occur? So the three main earthquakes that the, they looked at in this paper uh, were magnitude uh, high in the magnitude 8s and in the magnitude 9s, and these happen very rarely. So they, they, we've had three in the last 12 years, but that's unusual. The most recent ones before, before this recent phase were in the 1950s and 1960s. So this is the problem, that because you don't have many earthquakes of this size, because they don't come along very often, We've just not seen very many of them since we've had the instruments available to monitor them. Okay, and by understanding this link a bit better, will it help us to predict earthquakes, do you think? Earthquake prediction is a slightly sticky subject. So we're very good at working out where earthquakes will happen and how big they will be, but we're not very good at all at working out when they will happen. In terms of trying to sort of reduce earthquake hazard, this isn't a problem because if we can work out where the earthquakes will be and how big they will be, then that's all you need to do to be able to build buildings that won't fall down and kill people. Alex Copley, commenting on that study published in Nature Geosciences. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Ginny Smith, and also with Chris Smith. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can send us an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Now, stand by. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, top, décollage. Now, this is the sound of the launch of the European Space Agency's Gaia spacecraft in December 2013. Its five-year mission is to map out the millions of stars in our Milky Way galaxy. This week, the first batch of data that it's gathered was released. It's being heralded as a revolution in astronomy. But why? Well, let's meet the man with a plan. Cambridge scientist Jerry Gilmore first pitched this idea at the European Space Agency, and he has been shepherding the project along over its lifetime ever since. Jerry, you must be very proud to see the data finally come off the production line. But first of all, set the scene for us. What, what actually is the Milky Way? What do we understand by the Milky Way galaxy? Uh, OK, the Milky Way is the name of the band of stars one sees across the sky on a dark night. It's a rather narrow band. It's very long and rather thin. And this is the fundamental information about the structure of the Milky Way, the galaxy in which we live. It's flat-ish. But we know from looking at other spiral galaxies that it's, um, it is a spiral. So it's, uh, it has a big bar in the middle uh, and maybe two, maybe three, maybe four spiral arms coming off from that. And there's a huge supermassive black hole at the very, very centre and a very large number of stars densely packed around that supermassive black hole. So the, the central black hole provides a source of gravitational attraction that holds our, our galaxy and those stars together? No. No, no, not at all. <laughs> no, the uh, massive black hole is pretty massive, but actually compared to the whole of the Milky Way, it's an insignificant little thing. So the Milky Way is made up of maybe 100 billion stars like our own sun, uh, and they make up most of the mass in the disk of the Milky Way itself in the actual plane. But the galaxy itself is maybe 100 times more massive than that again, and that is made up of the famous dark matter. So it's the mass that's distributed through the Milky Way that holds it all together. And that, of course, was one of the reasons for Gaia, is to try and weigh that mass and find out where it is and hopefully determine where it's come from. I was just going to say, if you know all this about the Milky Way already, what are you seeking to learn from this Gaia mission? Well, what I told you was a bit top level, maybe a bit vague, you know, you'd like to put some numbers on things and uh, be a bit more specific. We know that from studies from many, many wavelengths, many telescopes, that the Milky Way, and so far as we know what it is, is probably just a dead average galaxy, just like one of the 100 billion other Milky Way-like galaxies in the whole universe. And so the real bottom line ambition for the Gaia mission was to set our own galaxy up as a Rosetta Stone. Let's do something that we actually know in detail. We can put real hard numbers on it. We can really work it out. 
everything that we can measure about it. And then we can do differential tests for everything else across the history of the universe and watch where these things came from and even where they're going to turn into. And what exactly are you measuring? Uh, the key parameter for Gaia is where the stars are. The, um, you'd think this history of astronomy, people have been trying to measure where the stars are since the Mesopotamians. You know, it, uh, Actually, astronomers are not very good at this sort of thing. <laughs> and so in the whole history of science up until last weekend, we had reasonably accurate measurements of the positions and distances from us of about maybe 100,000 stars uh, and how those stars were moving. Out of 100 billion, that's pretty pitiful, really. Uh, and they're all very local. The reason for that is that space is big, so it's really hard to measure the distances of stars. You need exquisite precision, which Gaia provides. So Gaia is the first ever exquisite measuring system, which is designed to measure not only where stars are, a large sample, 1% of them all, a billion or so, but also how those stars are moving. So we get three dimensions in space of where the stars are and then three little speeds for how they're moving in each of those three directions. Why does that matter, knowing how they move? The key information from motions is, in fact, being able to weigh things. If you know where something is and how fast it's moving, you know how much force, how much weight there is holding it where it is. If it's moving fast, you need more weight than if it's moving slowly. And so that simple measurement, well, it's not simple at all, but that, uh, in principle, straightforward measurement, if you can do it with enough stars in enough different places, will tell us how the dark matter is distributed and hopefully give us the first clues as to what the stuff actually is. But there's another even more fundamental thing uh, about the way stars are moving is that many stars are relatively young and we can, from where they're moving now, we can track them back in time if we can measure it accurately and find out where they came from. You can't do that for very far back just because of chaotic things and spiral arms sloshing us about and so on. But one of the really interesting questions we would like to know is where are all the sun's brothers and sisters? The average star, like the sun, forms in groups of tens of thousands of other stars. So somewhere there's 10,000 siblings. Do they have Earths? It'd be kind of nice to know. And you can find that? We can get towards finding that. Yeah, whether we can actually answer all these questions, we won't know until we get the data. But that's the sort of question that people are, are trying to uh, ask. So, for example, about four hours after we published the data on Wednesday, the first science result came out from the United States team studying planets in which they used the Gaia data to sub very substantially improve our knowledge of all the planets that have been found up till now. Uh, they did this by measuring using Gaia data to know the, the distances and therefore the true brightnesses of these stars. Uh, and from that, you can calculate the radius of the star. And then when a planet goes across in front of the star, if you know the size of the star and how long the uh, planet is in front of it, you can calculate the size of the planet and therefore the density of the planet, work out, is it rocky, is it gaseous, what is it, has it got an atmosphere? So that really fundamental result was improved by an accuracy of five times improvement on Wednesday afternoon. And that's just one of the thousands of things that will come out of Gaia. Now, some people are also saying that this offers us an opportunity to do things like test Einstein because we can look at general relativity, for example, and we can also look at how the galaxy is, is changing, how it's evolving, how it's growing or what its past was, because we can look back in time by looking across the galaxy and how things are moving. Yeah, the range of science goals for Gaia is, is enormous. It goes everything from studying the uh, structure of the very early universe right through to fundamental physics, down to finding out whether there are potential killer asteroids lurking up in, in the afternoon sun. Through that range, pretty well the whole of basic astrophysics will be fundamentally rewritten and produce a lot more significant numbers with Gaia. How does the data get from the spacecraft back to the Earth? Well, the spacecraft is, is a really simple thing. That's why it's so accurate. Uh, it's a, a billion pixel camera. So it basically is sending down a high definition movie continuously down to the ground. And the um, those images are what we turn into the positions and brightnesses of the stars. And because the camera keeps observing all the time, we can also not only see where things are moving slowly, but also we can um, find things that weren't there yesterday. Which sounds wonderful and very intriguing at the same time. Jerry Gilmore from the University of Cambridge, thank you very much. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder where you are. ESA hoovers up your light with our Gaia satellite. The mission is to measure distance, get a grasp on your existence. Gaia may not see you twinkle, 
but Ken's if you're multiple or single. That's the first part of a poem from astronomer George Seabrook. He's based at UCL's Mullard Space Science Laboratory, where he works on the Gaia mission, and he wrote that to celebrate the success of the launch. The rest of the verses are coming up later in the programme. But first, if you want to get a census of our galaxy, how do you go about it? The Gaia spacecraft itself is nestling in a region of space called the L2 Lagrange point, where it sits in the Earth's shadow, sheltered from the glare of the sun. But what's on board and how does it work? Georgia Mills took a trip to meet Gaia's makers. I'm Dr Ralph Cordy and uh, I'm Head of Science here at uh, Airbus Defence and Space at Stevenage. So we're sitting here in your office looking at a... um, uh, Frisbee. So this is Gaia. This is the, the spacecraft that's out there gathering data at the moment. It's um, yeah, about the size of a Frisbee and a small, very thin circle with a kind of upside down cup stuck in the middle. And it says here this is about one to 50 scale. So the real thing is 50 times bigger. Yeah, the real thing is about four metres across. It's a, it's a big disc. And that disc has a, has a particular purpose. Um, it basically sits uh, on the backside of the spacecraft, pointing towards the Earth, to protect the spacecraft from the heat of the sun. It's about stability. All of this mission is about stability. And protecting it in a really stable thermal environment is one of the key aspects of this. So what kind of um, tech is on board, I suppose? Basically, Gaia is a, is a telescope. Really, it's it's two telescopes looking in two directions at once and not just measuring the directions to stars that it sees, but looking at the relative directions between different patches of the sky. Now, Gaia rotates about once every six hours, sweeping out a path with its telescopes uh, across the sky and measuring as it does so the positions of stars. And over its five-year operational lifetime, it's going to be measuring each star about 70 times. That allows it to build up an intricate web of positions. And as a result of that, it can ultimately measure the position of a star to the equivalent accuracy of measuring the thickness of a human hair at a distance of about 1,000 kilometres. It is absolutely phenomenal, the accuracy that it can measure to. It's actually so sensitive that it's picking up the distortions in the direction of light caused by general relativity in the solar system. So it's distortions to space and time it's actually responding to as well. So how on earth is it getting an image this clear? What did you say, a human hair thousands of kilometres away? It's doing it by, first of all, having quite large telescopes, but, but importantly, it's about this stability. It's thermally stable, so that it's not expanding or contracting, so that we can control the telescope very accurately like that. But it's also pointing very accurately as it spins. Um, In its environment, it has to put up with um, micrometeoroids, you know, flecks of dust and things which will uh, impact it at high velocity and actually change its rotation rate. It's got to be able to deal with those and then maintain its rotation and keep on going. Now, to do that, it's not using rockets or anything like that. It's using little jets of cold gas, of nitrogen, little puffs. The spacecraft itself weighs a couple of tonnes. So little puffs of nitrogen are an incredibly fine way of tuning the, the rotation rate of this spacecraft. So that, combined with its stability, gives you this incredible accuracy that builds up over that five-year mission. How can Gaia tell how far away a star is? The basic technique is one called parallax. Now, parallax is about the difference in direction that a star appears to be from different positions you observe it in. Now, you can you can measure parallax just by standing in different positions, one side of a, of a city to another, but that won't be very good if your star is many, many light years away, or from one side of the Earth to the other. Or, as we're doing it with with Gaia, Gaia is following the Earth around its orbit. So actually it's looking at these stars from one side of Earth's orbit to the other side of Earth's orbit. And that gives it a a very nice baseline to look at the difference in directions to those stars and helps us to pin them down in three dimensions. I see. So because Gaia knows how far it has moved, the relative amount the star has moved will give it an idea of how far away it is. 
I mean, if you if you want a simple example, um, put your finger in front of you against a background, look at it with one eye shut, and then look at it with the other eye shut, and you'll see it appear against that background in different apparent positions. And that's what we're doing, except the, the, what we're doing it with are stars which are many tens to hundreds to thousands of light years away. That was Ralph Cordy from Airbus Space and Defence in Stevenage, speaking with Georgia Mills. She made biologists think differently because we showed that cells can be changed. So I may be the father of Dolly, but I think I'm the grandfather of iPS cells. Hello, Dolly. In this month's Naked Genetics, we're commemorating 20 years since the birth of Dolly the sheep, the first mammal cloned from an adult cell, and the transformative technologies that followed. Plus, our gene of the month is keeping a straight face. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. And we're exploring the far reaches of the galaxy this week with the help of the Gaia spacecraft. We just heard how Gaia is busy in orbit collecting data. But then what? Well, it beams this data back down to Earth. And this is where the teams on the ground get to work, getting it ready to be released to the world, as happened earlier in the week. Georgia Mills went to the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge on the big day to meet someone who's been working on Gaia's data for several years. You're Georgia, right? Yes. Hi. Hi. I'm uh, Nicholas Walton, I'm a member of the ESA Gaia science team and I'm here at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge. So there are seven so-called data processing centres across Europe. We have one of those here. Uh, It's one of these large big data type activities and we've got a a rack of uh, computers in a sort of supercomputer set up in the uh, uh, Cambridge uh, data centre. And uh, we take the data that comes to us from uh, the European Space Agency, where we photometrically calibrate and analyse the uh, that data. Once we've applied all of our calibrations, we send that back to ESA, and it's combined with a set of data processing outputs from other centres. And eventually you get the final catalogues, such as we see today. Before we get to the actual science people will be doing using this data set, what what have you been doing to this data? You say calibrate, but just elaborate to me. What does that mean? So if a star goes across the focal plane array, it's, uh, the, the starlight is detected by the charge couple detectors and uh, each uh, star going across generates, uh, well, it could be a, a little spectrum or a little image that gets sent to the ground, but that's in some arbitrary units and we have to convert that into something where we can flux calibrate that data so we can turn something into a known calibrated object. So we can basically say if something was bright, if something was uh, faint, how bright in real physical units. And we are responsible for removing a number of the artefacts in the the data acquisitions for aspects such as uh, scattered light or various positional uh, movements which might affect the flux calibration. Basically, a lot of work for a lot of people. Gaia sent down billions and billions of data points to process. And by processing things like the brightness, the distance and even the colour, this helped work out what kind of object it was seeing. And the first lot of this data got released this week, happily coinciding with Gaia's birthday. Gaia itself was launched at the uh, end of December in 2013, so in fact today is 1,000 days exactly after the launch of Gaia. Is it a nice feeling to sort of have the world be able to see all this data? Yeah, so it is. It's great to see. It's great to see a really excellent data set, a really excellent set of uh, data which is going to help so many people write so many decent papers and discover so many new uh, aspects about our, uh, our galaxy and how we are and where we're going. Data Release 1, in many ways, sets the scene for what's coming. It shows that Gaia works. It shows that all the processing systems work. It shows the data is very high quality. It gives us a taster catalogue for 2 million uh, objects. It gives us a map of a billion objects. And as we go on with further future releases, we add more richer information about each of the objects that we observe. So we we get information about the spectra, so we can classify, we can say this star is this hot, or it's a a giant, or it's a dwarf star, or it's an active star, or it's a planet, or it's a near-Earth object, oh, we better look out sort of thing. (laughs) So (laughs) we've we've got a lot of exciting new data uh, coming out. So 
And um, with this data release, it's just been thrown out there to the world. Who are you expecting is going to be using this data and what for? Uh, well, I think many, many, many astronomers across the world are going to be using this data, be they looking at stellar astrophysics, be they looking at planets around nearby stars, be they looking at our solar system and uh, looking at uh, dark matter, linking to cosmologies and so forth. So... Well, perhaps not the entire, but a large, a large, a large fraction of of the astronomical community will be uh, looking at this data. But it's also good for uh, those interested in the in the public to 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 take a look, especially when the the maps of the three D uh, Milky Way come out, to so you'll get an idea of where we are in space and time. I mean, I cannot wait for someone to build a virtual reality Milky Way for me to fly around in. It's <laughs> on the cards. Uh, that's coming. <laughs> that will be there, and I think uh, the technology will be there to uh, to fly around in your VR universe. That was Nicholas Walton from the Institute of Astronomy at Cambridge University. And Jerry tells me that the data from Gaia is arriving at the rate of five gigabytes a second. So it's a lot of data. Astronomers, we feel the need to measure line of sight speed. Gaia's radial velocity spectrometer is the Milky Way's speedometer. The Mullard Science Laboratory has helped to write the Gaia story, has tested every key detector and coded software for billions of spectra. That was the rest of the poem Gaia by George Seabrook from UCL. It's part of an anthology called Laboratorio, compiled by poet Simon Barraclough, who spent a year visiting UCL's Mullard Space Science Laboratory in Surrey and using it to inspire his writing. Thank you, Ginny. Well, we've just heard some of the things that scientists everywhere are inevitably going to be using Gaia to do, but how does this fit into the bigger picture? And why do we need a better map of our home galaxy? Well, Mark McCorcoran is the Senior Science Advisor at the European Space Agency, ESA. Hello, Mark. Good evening. So what are you at ESA anticipating that Gaia's legacy is going to be? I think the first thing you have to realise is that this is just the first release of the data from Gaia. It was launched at the end of 2013, and here we are in 2016. It's actually just the first year's worth of data. And in that big pile, what we've been able to do is establish the positions, the 2D positions, and the brightnesses of a billion stars. But we've also already given out 2 million stars with their full three-dimensional positions and their motions. And that's because we've been able to connect the Gaia data with data from an older mission of ours called Hipparchos that was flying at the end of the 1980s. And that is actually where a lot of the science is getting done now because that complete data set, the 2 million stars, is about a factor of 20 more than ever done before. And that's just a taster because at the end of next year, Gaia catalogue will contain the same information for the full billion. One of the kind of strange things, actually, legacy-wise, is I suspect you know some of the scientists won't want to hear this, but um, the ideal thing about Gaia would that it would be it would disappear, that it would become invisible. By what which I mean is that it's so fundamental, it's so linked into every form of astronomy moving forward from today that Gaia just will underpin all of those things and, and effectively become part of the infrastructure. And what is it going to lead to? You've sort of alluded to it there, but where do you see this leading next? Well, we have a whole range of missions in the European Space Agency, uh, astrophysics missions, planetary missions, uh, solar missions. So for us, Gaia is, is deeply linked into all of those missions by definition, because it's so fundamental by establishing the scale, the motions, the history of our Milky Way. As Jerry explained earlier on, that helps you understand galaxy evolution across cosmic distances and across cosmic time. And in fact, a future mission of ours, which we're now building called Euclid, will in essence do a similar sort of survey, not for stars in the Milky Way, but of galaxies themselves across the whole of the universe. And by measuring the positions and slight distortions in the shapes of those galaxies, we'll be able to understand both dark matter, but also the even more elusive dark energy. So these giant surveys, gathering huge amounts of data, processing them, making the results available to everybody, is becoming a very key part of modern astronomy. 
Now, the price tag for this is something in the region of north of a billion euros. So when it goes to completion, that will have notched up a price tag of something like one euro per star, or maybe a bit more since Brexit, I'm not sure. But how do you justify that sort of spend? Well, let's keep in mind that this is money coming from 22 member states in the European Space Agency. So there's roughly 500 million people across those countries. And this mission, by the end, will have been running more than 20 years. So the the amount of money that's spent each year is actually very small indeed per citizen. But it's not spent in space either. It's spent on the ground, in industry, in academia. It's spent, in fact, even in schools because there's very strong outreach programs run all across Europe to try to engage students in the science that Gaia is doing. And from my perspective in ESA, we do some amazingly exciting things, uh, flying through the solar system, investigating the far distant reaches of the universe. But perhaps one of the most fundamental aspects of what we do is to inspire people and to inspire kids in particular to go into science, technology, engineering and maths, uh, because those are skills we desperately need on the earth where we have many problems, as we know. Uh, And if we can inspire kids to get involved in those kinds of subjects through missions like Gaia, then it's a win win. We do brilliant science and we can help with many of the problems we face on the earth. And tell us what the school kids who you're getting involved can do, because this is really high-level space science. What can someone in a classroom contribute? Well, not really. It's in, in a sense, it's very basic. You know, we have positions of stars and movements of stars, and the, the data are all free, accessible. We have nice interfaces that people can go and actually download the data and play with. And we're building educational tools around that, so people will be able to actually make, if you like, a movie of the Milky Way and understand how it was put together by tracing it backwards in time and tracing it forward in the future. Wonderful. Mark, thank you very much. That's Mark McCorcoran from the European Space Agency. And if you're interested, there is a new Gaia app which has just been released and you can download it and you can follow the research programme in real time, gaia.ac.uk. There's a link to the app on that website. Now it's time for Question of the Week and Laura Brooks has been seeking to please by answering this question from Josh. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. Do animals ever experience the placebo effect? For example, pets who have previously had successful veterinary interventions. Could your pet be fooled by fake pills? To find out, I spoke to Eleanor Drinkwater, researcher in animal behaviour at the University of York. When talking about the placebo effect, we tend to think of cases where just the belief in a treatment can make you feel a certain way, even when the treatment has no actual effect. It therefore seems counterintuitive to think of animals showing a placebo effect when they do not necessarily understand the aim of the treatment and can't therefore show belief in the outcome. However... Current research suggests that the placebo effect is not just caused by one mechanism, but rather by a range of different mechanisms. One mechanism in particular for which there is strong evidence in animals is conditioning. In conditioning, an active substance which elicits a response can be repeatedly paired with an inactive substance, like a smell or a taste. Eventually, the inactive substance alone can elicit the response of the active substance. One great example is actually the first description of this from Pavlov, who's very famous for his experiments in dogs. Now, in this particular experiment, he would place a dog in a chamber and inject it with morphine. After a few days of injections, he found that just placing the dog in the chamber would result in the dog physiologically reacting as if it had been injected. It seems that, with conditioning, dogs can experience placebo effects. And if that isn't surprising enough, Eleanor told me that, at least in rats, it can go as far as altering immune function. One incredible example of this was shown by Ada and Cohen back in 1975. In their remarkable study in rats, they showed that by pairing a distinctive taste with injections of immunosuppressant, they could condition an association between the taste and the change in the immune system. This meant that the conditioned rats would show a dampened immune response if they were given the taste alone, even without the active immunosuppressant. So, overall, while it might be difficult to determine if animals can show a placebo effect through certain mechanisms like expectancy or belief, there is strong evidence for animals exhibiting the placebo effect through other mechanisms like conditioning. 
Well, there you have it. Thanks, Elena. And next time, we'll be answering this question from Gareth. Is it plausible to draw any kind of link between nuclear tests by countries like North Korea and um, the prevalence of earthquakes? Could there be a link? If you know the answer to Gareth's question, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that brings us to the end this week. Thank you very much to Georgia Mills for putting the programme together, Ginny for helping to present it, and to you for listening to it. Do join us next week when we're going to be offering you a little light relief. Intrigued? You'll have to find out what that's all about. If you have any questions for us in the meantime, you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>